tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in Ukraine. Uh, yes, hi. So uh, just a little background. Um, I am Ukrainian-American. My wife is from Lviv. Um, my parents were child refugees the last time the Russians invaded Western Ukraine uh, in 1944, kind of the way we always saw it. And um, I've been very active uh, in Ukraine since the, well, 12 hours after uh, the scale upscaled invasion happened. Uh, my company uh, was founded several years ago to provide an alternative to <clears throat> portable gasoline generators. Um, and our first market is actually disaster response. Um, so oddly, the situation in Kherson with flooding is something that uh, we faced after Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Ian in the U.S. And um, Uh, and we just happened to have already been working with Helena, um, who, just for whom I have the most utmost respect. She's amazing to work with. Um, and we were working with her um, because we have some solar generators there uh, in points of invincibility uh, because we're trying to address the issue uh, with gas generators. Everybody thinks it's an easy solution. It's a cheap upfront purchase, but um, they don't realize that they're, like Helena said, There's not a budget for it. It's also very hard logistics to get gasoline. And when you have <clears throat> parts of the grid that are pervasively down um, or, or permanently down in some areas around Kherson, uh, they really needed another alternative. So um, uh, one of my colleagues uh, connected us and we have, uh, like I said, we've installed two of them in these points of invincibility Um, and they don't need uh, gasoline for recharging. They provide, uh, it, they're actually quite strong and powerful, these installations. They're up to five kilowatts. And, um, uh, but just to take a step back, you know, we're here talking a lot about Kherson today. And so I don't know how much we want to focus on, you know, general questions because we've been working, like I said, in Ukraine since a uh, year. We've deployed a lot of our systems in hospitals and with military. Uh, we do work a lot uh, with frontline troops, uh, drone operators, uh, battalion communications level and the like. And um, and then we also have started now in what we call community resilience and our first program there. And in, in, uh, we have one in Kharkiv that we started with a couple of sites, um, although the situation improved dramatically there and then uh, in Kherson. And so, you know, we you know, we never thought we would have to adapt to a war environment like we have. Um, But due to my background and, you know, I, I did see what was going to happen last winter uh, in advance. Um, I really had a strong feeling that Russians were going to go after the electrical grid. And, um, you know, there are various ways to try to solve uh, problems uh, when it comes to electricity. Um, but I think, you know, there's lots of questions as to the why, like what are all the needs and, and the like. And one thing I can say that's a constant is that it's constantly changing. Uh, here we were working with Helena on community resilience, providing power to some of the islands uh, there that uh, where, where the grid was wiped out. And they, they uh, I don't know if you guys all know, but grid workers 
in um, Kharkiv were killed by Russian snipers and artillery when they were out there trying to to fix and extend the grid to some of these villages uh, outside of Kherson. So it's kind of a, a crazy situation, like I said, one that we don't uh, normally face in our regular work. Um, but we do... And, and we sorry. reported, and Bob, we did report on this uh, last year when it started, the first, um, say, um, aid workers also, as well as the firemen in Kharkiv, were being specifically targeted. Russians, at the point in time when they were very close to Kharkiv, were even taking out their own combat drones to attack firefighters. And later, as you quite rightly said, the grid workers of Ukrainergo. And um, yeah, uh, that is no surprise because if they annihilate, of course, those who uh, do uh, the most in order to mitigate the damage than they can stall um, the repair. Yeah, that's what they do. But carry on. Well, no, just want to. Uh, while we're on that subject, one of the things uh, you know, we uh, when we set out several years ago, we had to develop portable solar panels that are super easy to install. And you know, one of the things that we do is that when we deliver a system, it can actually be self-installed. You don't need an electrician. Uh, it's not permanent. You you get to relocate it and move it around if you'd like. But our panels are actually made out of military specification materials. They're actually used by department. Department of Defense, uh, not through us, but the original manufacturer. And um, one of the things that's important on what we were talking about here, if you can imagine, is if you put glass solar panels out, uh, well, first of all, I'll say if you have a gas generator, um, just generators are being targeted first for audible noise but second for their heat signatures. And you obviously can't use a gas generator indoors. And so a couple of the military units um, that we work with sent us some nice photos of their gas generator blown up by Russian artillery. But Helena had that same problem. Um, so in Antonivka, I think it's called, and a couple of the other villages, and this is when we first started working. She was like, Paul, you got to get us something different. We can't run generators here because the drones see them and hear them. Uh, and, uh, you know, thermal technology being so good nowadays. And, um, and, and they target them. And so nobody wants to have them around. It's a liability. Well, I said, well, I got something silent for you. And the, the way we go about solving their problem is um, you can keep the battery and solar system, which is in an enclosure, you know, indoors. And, and by the way, I'm not talking little camping type uh, systems. We do, you know, larger, really professional grade uh, systems. And uh, we just happen to put them into mobile enclosures. And uh, but what we do is we have these fold out solar panels that um, of, a, of, a, of a similar performance characteristic of a glass panel. And you put them out during the day. You put them on the roof. You put them outdoors um, and then you bring them in. Uh, you know, in the evening so you can secure them and the like. Uh, our first actually user of this was uh, Mikulayev uh, Oblast Hospital, which was hit by two cruise missiles in uh, August. And the doctor, they actually ring fenced a small part of the of the hospital and uh, said, okay, we got to continue trauma operations. Uh, that was the time Kherson was still occupied. And the the people there, Ukrainians are always so clever. They, they, they put our equipment right next to the operating equipment, the ventilators, the blood suction and uh, um, all the monitors and everything they need to conduct trauma operations. And then they ran the, uh, uh, cable connector up to the roof and put out our portable panels on the roof. And that was their source of power for a while. 
cheers, Paul. Now, how portable are, are, are these all together? Because I know I've got some portable, I've got some solar panels on my um, on my shed, uh, but the only thing that isn't really portable is where to store the energy uh, for when the sun isn't there. So the batteries are the most, uh, the heaviest part of, of mine. I use lead acid batteries. So, oh. so what kind of weight? What kind of weight are we talking about? And what kind of uh, storage yeah. um, do they have? Well, we we use uh, only lithium iron phosphate batteries. Uh, that is uh, the safest of the lithium chemistries. You know, it's got iron and phosphate. Um, unlike the cells using Teslas that have magnesium, which you know is also, I think, an ingredient in fireworks. Um, so we use very safe lithium. It's got about two to three times the energy density of your lead acid batteries. So basically you're looking at providing two to three times more energy for the same weight that you're having in your lead acid batteries. Um, and, uh, and you can use the entire amount of energy that you have in the battery. Lead acid, you can really only go down and to anywhere from 20 to 50%. So you're yeah. talking, you're talking a weight though, generally from like our, our, most of the systems we have in Ukraine is from 70 pounds or call it 33 kilos um and but that's including the inverter the charge controller the whole power system um yeah and, and the um, case yeah when i was when i was building my system um it was a cost to weight ratio basically uh, i mean lead acid batteries are very very cheap but as you say they you can only draw them down to 50 percent, so basically halves how many amp hours it says on the battery for so minus 110 um and uh, and, and then the cost of them. So lithium iron was about three, four times the price uh, of of the same kind of uh, amp hours for the lead acid. So yeah, I couldn't afford the lead acid. Basically, I just ended up getting um, getting get, sorry, I couldn't afford the lithium ones. So it's just the lead acids. But yeah, it's one of, one of the things I found when the sun's shining, it's brilliant solar panels. But when it's not shining at night time, then it's it's how you store the energy and and where you store it. Yep. And um, you can, you can even use second-hand car batteries as well. Uh, so from electric cars, uh, take those batteries um, and store, store, store energy in there. Yeah, I mean, it all I depends agree. how much power you need. Um, so our, the systems, for example, and just to stick to Kherson, we have you know everything from a 1.2 kilowatt-hour battery, something that weighs about uh, 14 kilograms that we put out on the islands. Um, it needed to be highly mobile and transportable on a boat. Uh, and... Um, uh, to uh, the ones that we're using in certain points of invincibility that are about, I would say, 100 kilos. And it's a two-person lift. Uh, I've moved them myself a lot in Louisiana after hurricanes. So it's the kind of thing where it's always on wheels and you lift it up into a pickup truck or van, you move it, uh, and then you lift it down. And you, know, you can move it a good 100, 200 feet uh, on its wheels, but uh, really don't want to be, you know, you don't want to march in a parade with it. Uh, but it, um, uh, the, the portability and, and everything is, is something that, you know, we focus on the ease of use, like flipping two breakers, pressing one button. And you have a solar system that's up and running. Um, you know, our, like I said, ours aren't these camping versions. Ours are, uh, uh, in general, are, are we, we orient everything towards professional use. We work with telecommunications operators and you know other sort of high quality uh, solar construction companies, remote power. Uh, but disaster relief, emergency management, now wars has become a big part of our our business. that's all going to help in this uh, in this. Current- current environment in Ukraine. Uh, we'll just quickly go to David. He's got his hand up sure. for a while, David. 
David. Yeah, Shaggy. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks for hosting, uh, Paul, for being with us. And it's great to hear from Ukraine directly. I appreciate you making time. Just want to repeat to everybody listening, please uh, share the space and retweet and visit mariareport.org. I know they're fundraising right now for relief uh, for the Kherson region. I-, I wanted to ask Paul, if you might, I'm, I'm sorry if you've mentioned it already. Um, I may have been, I may have missed it while I was trying to come up and down. In terms of portability, um, I, I don't know if, if you could share, but how heavy generally and how easy is it to stack it? Like what, what kind of um, haulage, what kind of, what do you need to get it in place? How heavy is it? Um, and the installation, like would it be half day? Would it be a day? Who needs uh, to do it? Or can it be pretty easy off a YouTube video? Thanks very much. Easy off a YouTube video. Installation can be as little as 10 minutes. Uh, and if you watch the video, another couple of minutes. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the systems that we're working a lot with Helena are 100 kilograms. Like I said, they've got, you know, handles built in on the on the unit. And um, uh, so it is relatively, you know, it's heavy uh, in terms of uh, uh, lifting vertically, but it moves really well horizontally. Uh, that gives it a lot of its portability and mobility. Uh, and then we've got smaller systems, uh, you know, that are in the sort of, uh, I would say, 40 kilogram range, which is a two person lift off metal handles. Uh, so, yeah, I think that I think that answers your questions. I mean, the, the, the amount of energy, though, that you get out of a lithium battery battery today and you know the costs have really come down on it i like to tell people what we do today three years ago wasn't really that economical and we saw four years ago we actually started out working with electric vehicle batteries and giving them a second life because lithium batteries were so expensive but we didn't like that technology it wasn't reliable enough and our users said man we've really got to count on on these cycles and everything um so we uh, that's why we moved to what we call first use lithium because the prices just really came down and um, you know, we do efficiently try to source uh, uh, the best but you know very cost effective batteries now when you talk about size and power one of the things we do so you know it is very easy to install and we also make it really easy to add additional batteries um, so we have a little industrial connector called an Anderson connector. You plug it into the side of pretty much most all of our units, except for our smallest, and you can daisy chain them. And so we can provide two or three or four units in a certain area. You can just connect them with a three foot cable and all four of them then quadruple the amount of energy you have. So we can go from either 2.5 kilowatts up to 10 or a five kilowatt unit goes up to 20 kilowatt hours um so you know that's how we scale and each piece is obviously then easy to move but you have to put several pieces together and you know to be yeah. and to be clear sorry is that you, you you plug in right now you plug into our units you're not taking you know you need an electrician to take our unit and plug it into the mains if you want to run the building for its normal electrical um, uh, infrastructure so like when we work with hospitals what they do is they actually plug into our unit they if they have grid power they plug our unit into the wall because it actually works as an internal power supply and then you know the frequency of grid outages like in Mikolai, if that grid goes down they're in the middle of operation they don't care it moves over to a powerful lithium battery um, and that also 
And then if they have a long-term outage, they connect the solar panels and they recharge that way. So they're able to, it's part of this is mitigation planning um, for, you know, look, you've got to, you, you got to plan for the worst uh, a lot of times. And like, that's like one of the things Helena and I were working on uh, was like, where are the best place first she she wanted to put um uh the solar generators into those areas that had no grid but then we started working with rotary international and they funded a couple of units to go into the children's hospital because they had to run the incubators they really had to ensure they were getting a lot of outages they were having some patient problems and they could lose patients on the table ukrainian hospitals aren't equipped um uh you know with ups's uh some of them have been given generators a lot of them have such old electrical wiring infrastructure that they can't attach the central generator anywhere so what do they do they keep it outdoors and run a hundred foot cable um i mean so there was a lot of like rushing to oh hey let's send generators to ukraine without really understanding fully how they're going to use them um and then of course she mentioned the budget problem these hospitals the hospital we work in the mikolaev they love our stuff they keep asking for more from donors because um they don't have the money or the electrical infrastructure, they cannot put a centralized generator in. So kind of, you know, you, yeah. you, you come across problems and you solve them. Yeah. David, if you want to come back and then Jorn. Shaggy, I was going to jump in real quick. Um, I had a question for Paul. Um, one is, have you deployed any of your solar generation systems or your power banks for the water infrastructure around the Kherson region? Well, um, yeah, that's actually where I'm... Helena's her and her team get to do it. We she 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 owns these systems and she knows their power. So it's in general, it, it all depends on the power the pumps take. So we can surge up yep. to ten kilowatts on that initial and pumps. The way they work is usually they a lot of pumps agriculturally, for example, settle between one and two kilowatts, but they'll surge five or six. And so the units you got to get the pump pressure yeah, up and going and then, yeah. then your load drops on your electrical. Yeah. And we, we are okay with those smaller ones. Um, the, some of the ones that were discussed with her, these are really large city pumps. And so that one is got a different mission, you know, and, and that probably won't be us, but a lot of, but uh, one of the things we're going to work on right now, Helena has to deal with triage. Um, but we do, uh, there was a gentleman who asked her a question who said he worked a lot after floods. He was talking about the sanitation, the, the needs for disinfection and disease control, you know, well, on our side, we uh, support a lot of efforts in mold remediation and um, scrapping stuff. And, you know, we, we power, we, the guys go out, and there's no power in the area, but they need to recharge their tools because they're out there doing demolition. I mean, there's going to be a lot of homes that are going to be sadly demolished. I mean, we saw this after Ida. I mean, we're still powering some groups on the Outer Banks in southern Louisiana uh, a year and a half later because they don't have the grid uh, in these very isolated areas. And, you know, but they're doing demolition and they're doing that mold remediation. So uh, one of the things I know we'll transfer to next week is going to be running a lot of fans. So if people are going to move back in their homes, you've got to uh, uh, deal with uh, that moisture issue, and it's pervasive. I mean, you've got to you got to do the demolition. You got to pull all the furniture and clothes and everything out of the house. It's just going to be piles of trash. You got you and know. you got to cut out all the sheetrock up to the water line because it's going to yep. mold. Yep. Yeah, it's it's going to be a completely different animal than responding to a war zone. And now they've got both the the twofold problem of 
mitigating the environmental and ecological problems and also dodging the drones and the rockets and the artillery. Yeah, I'm really hoping to um, that we'll get some good donors for her. We want to take we've got some really good systems uh, right now in Ukraine that we, we don't have unlimited quantity, but we've got some where we want to put them into some uh, uh, talk about putting into some of her vehicles and then you can pull up, you can silently power uh the fans and and other devices and then they can do that kind of work um the one thing one rule though as well is you got to manage your power and you know make all the efforts during the course of the day to keep that battery topped up so you're using it all day you're running fans or you're running or recharging power tools of course you got to recharge connectivity devices uh, that's probably our primary role is keeping people connected. Uh, and uh, but then you got to go into the night with a good full battery charge. So when you come up in the morning, uh, you give it, you know, when sun comes out uh, right now is obviously a great time of the year. And, you know, in general, Kherson is actually in a very good um, solar irradiance area. You know, a lot of people talk, oh, well, it's Ukraine. Well, you know, Ukraine's different. It's a large country. If you Google solar irradiance map, you'll actually see that a lot of the frontline areas where things are currently being fought are actually very strong solar irradiance areas. You know, uh, north of Chernobyl, that's not a great solar irradiance area. Or if anybody listening is from Lviv, they know that Lviv has its famous microclimate where in the summer it feels like the middle of winter um but you know and and, and you're not talking sume or or north of Kharkiv, but you know um in that area from odessa to kherson over even you know cutting north to zaporizhia uh it's a very good solar radiance area so you know when you come out in the morning to start work you throw our panels on the top of your truck let's say you've got a truck mounted unit you throw the panel they literally fold out because they go we can take a 420 watt panel and you can tuck it. Uh, it's about a foot wide and probably four inches thick. It folds into six pieces and uh, it weighs about half of that of a glass panel, but obviously a lot less bulky. And it's easy to chuck into the back of a, of a van or a truck and you pull up to the job site. Let's say, let's just say we're talking the remediation in Kherson, you know, you can pull up. Uh, you can have actually the whole thing in a in a in a giroli if you even want in the trunk. Uh, you can fit the panels in there. Uh, something you can't do with glass panels. And then you can take it out, and put it on the roof of the car while you're working, and it'll obviously be very quiet. Um, uh, and I think you got, uh, uh, I mean, there's going to be a lot of other issues to worry about. Say, so can you even work? Of course, mold remediation, if the Russians are sniping and throwing artillery down, uh, you know, one thing I know though, is Ukrainians are going to want to return to their houses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna uh, and we have to help them. them. Yeah. They're going to need power when they get there. A lot of help. Uh, David. Yeah. Thanks very much, Paul. I appreciate your time and answering the question. I wanted to ask maybe about electric uh, electric power water pumps. If we're able to use your system to have stable supply of power, from which from what I've listened to, it sounds like we could. Um, these people need fans and pumps, and I wonder um, if any mention or should be making a push to get fundraising for those items specifically as well. Yeah, you know, um, obviously the pumps. I always give that to a a, a one of my engineers to. You know, we always uh, we do we are very responsive. So we would, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, we do have these five kilowatt inverters there that will surge. So, uh, you know, it has to be below that. But I actually 
am not sure how much the once the water recedes. I think there's going to be some iso, you know, there will be, you know, places where water is remaining and stagnant. But I see, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of silt, uh, a lot of need for for other types of like dredging equipment, uh, power washers, and um, you know, you got yeah, like I said, you, you're going to have to get a lot of this silt away also. So I I think right now they're in the pump phase. Um, and you know, uh, I think a lot of the need for pumping is going to reduce. They're still going to be there. Um, but that all of that, I think dredging, you can call it, or silt removal is going to become uh, a big challenge. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And not all pumps are made the same just before we move too far from that. Um, she mentioned specifically a head height for some pumps to pump out raw sewage or other things to divert it from the fresh water supply. And you can't just go buy a pump at an nope. epicenter and assume it's got enough pump capacity to empty out a basement inside of a week. Oh, yeah. Basements. Basements are going to be an issue. Yeah. If, that's a good point. I'm keenly interested in getting uh, a better spec sheet on the type of pump she's looking for. Um, I know somebody that has half a dozen some pumps sitting in here on right now that are waiting to be deployed along with some water filtration systems. But uh, I want to make sure they get put in a fit for use application. Well, one thing I'll say is because Helena is great to work with. Um, having done, I've done that kind of exercise with her on our own, and uh, but um, I, I think it's great when you put her in touch with the local person. So we have a small staff in Lviv, and you know they actually drove all the way out to Kherson, worked with uh, Helena, and everything got done. She prepped everything really well, so she's extremely thoughtful and thorough, and and, and you know that's a problem she's going to want to solve. So I'm sure she, putting her in touch with those people, the people you have there and having that dialogue, that is, uh, I think you'll be impressed. I know about a dozen people in, in the city right now, personally, and at least eight of them I call friends. Amazing. So anything we can do to help her, would love to do it. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things with the silt as well is uh, trying to pump out while it's still in a liquid kind of form. Uh, be but because of the heat as well, it's going to dry out really quickly. It silt dries out really, really quickly. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a race against time to try and get it pumped out before it goes really, really hard. Yeah, if you don't keep the water turning, that silt is going to fall out of the water column real quick, and they're going to end up pumping out a bunch of water from basements and other areas that are low-lying, and then they'll have sludge at the bottom. And they'll yeah, just have to shovel it out, honestly. Um, yeah, exactly. If you can keep the water moving and turning, the the particulates are going to fall out, and then you just have to shovel it. Yeah, and that's going to that's going to that, all that silt is going to block block the actual pipes that are already there. So all the waste pipes and the water pipes and stuff that are already there, if that still gets stuck in those pipes, that's going to cause a nightmare to, to get to get it out. I think. Dry fly. No, I was going to go to dry fly. Uh, okay, dry fly. Yeah, hey, I was uh, going to uh, comment too um, to Paul. If you're looking for some other solutions to be peripheral to your your power source, you may want to contact MSR, the backpacking and um, trekking company out of Oregon. They sell uh, filters. They sell all kinds of different kinds of uh, remote access equipment 
Um, and the reason I bring that up is a friend of mine was doing similar to what you, you were doing. He was developing solar applications for hurricane relief. He's a Pakistani uh, immigrant to the U.S. who had to live on solar on and off because of the power grade. So he's been developing solar power applications down in Texas. And when the hurricanes hit in uh, Puerto Rico, we re- he immediately realized how desperate the water situation would be. And he had a long conversation with the people at MSR, that's like in Mary uh, Sanford, Reno. Uh, uh, I think it stood originally for Mountain Safety Research. And they have uh, a commercial as well as a consumer line of products. But more importantly, they also service NGOs and developing world. And my understanding is they have a remote chlorination unit where all it takes is water, salt, and electricity, and they can generate chlorine on demand in relative high quantities and fairly pure to be able to use for municipal purification. And um, I believe if you contact them through their website or through their phones, they have a a way to... um, work with, with both NGOs and emergency response applications. So you could take your solar power, take one of their units, and with simple filtration, you could probably produce a considerably larger amount of safe water pretty darn quickly using those systems. So I would I would look into that. Um, like I said, we looked into it for um, Puerto Rico after the hurricanes, and it was a great solution. They already had a had had people there bringing it in but um it's something i would absolutely work uh work with if i were you i have talked to the the engineers there this is probably three four years ago but i know that they're still very active and it's on their website no thank you very much uh i'm actually up in washington state and we have uh customers down in Oregon. So I would, uh, I will absolutely, you know, uh, that is an issue I started addressing with an NGO called Freshwater International. And so we're just trying to, uh, we're just starting to get into it. Um, and we, uh, you know, I agree. It's, uh, it, you know, in certain ways, electricity you provide, it really is uh, in and of itself. It isn't always the goal. The goal is of course, to uh, all the devices and our, our, you know, needs that consume it. And sometimes, uh, uh, I've been in this industry for a long time and, uh, you know, you can get wrapped up just in, Oh, I'm providing electricity. It's, it's actually more important that it can be used effectively. And, you know, those applications, uh, obviously connectivity and running fans or running, you know, doing water filtration or, or this chlorination that, that is, that's absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much. Yeah. MSR definitely reach out to them there. They are, um, really, I, they have they have handheld products as well. I mean, I use their handheld filtration system when I go backpacking, and it was designed right. for the developing world. And this is not your typical lightweight hiker type thing. This is to yeah. filter out hepatitis. I mean, it's everything. And you'd, you'd think you'd never use it in North America, but my wife and I were up in northern Wisconsin just last weekend hiking around, and we couldn't get access to clean water because the wells weren't in very good shape. So we used it right. We used it right in the streams and the lakes, and our water was actually better than we were getting out of the so-called potable systems that were provided by the National uh, Forest Service. So I mean, it's it definitely reach out to them because they're very innovative and they have products on the shelf, and I'm sure they would work with you. And, and the chlorine Great. in that area is going to be absolutely vital because it allows you to to do two things: one, produce clean water, but also 
it's it's an at a point source of of a disinfectant immediately able to to be used and not have to be trucked in. You got the power, you got water, you got salt, you got table salt. You can produce chlorine. Yeah, yeah the, the, the problem is a, a bunch of a bunch of the contaminants that are going to be in this particular flood are uh, particulate matter, whether it's biological or just sediment. Um, oh, I know that. Chlorine I, works great, but your water's still going to be ugly, dirty. Well, I, I know and that. And then you've it, got to filter through a coffee filter. The, the kill is, is that if you could take a simple filter, okay, relatively inexpensive particulate filter, it will get out more still, but it still won't be safe to drink. If you take that water and you run it through uh, a simple filter, again, power with a simple pump, you don't need to have anything elaborate, and then hit it with chlorine, you're going to know you're going to get rid of the stuff you're going to have to get rid of, and not just bacteria. It'll go down to viruses and hepatitis, and a lot of stuff is going to be in that water because it's going to be going through sewage treat treatments, and there's going to be bodies and all kinds of stuff. So I'm just saying reach out to them. They've been there, done that. They've done it all over the disaster areas and the Himalayas. Uh, hurricane areas. So I think you're going to find that they have solutions that you can basically pick up, put on a crate and, and have in country. And I will step down and listen. Thank you. Thanks, thanks DryFi. Paul, if you if you if not speaking, if you can turn your microphone off so we don't hear you uh, blowing your nose and stuff like that, that'd be really handy. Um, yeah, and I just back up back up what Ryan has said as well. The water that's going to be kind of sloshing around Curzon and everything is going to have everything in it from the yeah, animal matter, silts, um, petrol, chemicals, everything in it. So those those filters uh, required to to obviously filter the water are going to have to be really pretty pretty heavy duty. Um, I'd say so. That's kind of really quite quite important. Important take the spec of the filter. Um, I'd say that's, um, that's a big problem right now. Um, Chris and Julia from Renegade were down delivering uh, pole water filtration systems into the Harrison region about a week and a half ago uh, before this disaster landed in our laps, um, and some of the constraints or the drawbacks of the Paul water filtration systems that they were taking down there is that they only filter particulate matter above five microns. They don't handle desalination. They don't handle hydrocarbons. They don't handle chemicals that might be um, dissolved in the, the water. So it's difficult. There, there exists a, a bunch of water infrastructure already in that area. Some of the water infrastructure that was providing pressured water through a pipe to the remote villages was sending water out there, but they couldn't desalinate it to the point that it was uh, something that the local community wanted to drink. And then just like has been alluded to here, like Paul was saying, there's an economics factor of this, of if we suddenly provide all this potable water and the residents are using a bunch more of it or want a bunch more of it, how do you deliver it to the villages that actually need it? And is there an existing budget uh, or does the budget allow for them to drive it out there? There's fuel's a problem. Fuel is freaking expensive. It costs the same as it does here in the U.S., but people in Ukraine don't make the same money as we do here in the U.S. So you're still paying four bucks a gallon for your gas. But if you only make ten dollars a day, that four dollar gallon of gas is a lot more valuable. So solar yeah. generators are, are much more preferential um, than gas powered ones. But we've got to make sure we're not adding to the problem by solving one and creating another. 
Yeah, uh, logistics, as I say, logistics is always always one of the most important things. It's okay having a solution at the end, but it's, it's getting the right solution there. And then bloke, angry. <clears throat> sorry, uh, I, I think you... Oh, sorry, Paul. Uh, I Shaggy faded out there for a bit, and I, I couldn't hear him. Oops, sorry about that, the angry angry um i probably said something really important but I missed it so to keep tuned in keep tuning in uh bloke hi um i was going to say the waters uh issue um the company i work for does water filtration so i think the solution that you're referring to regarding using salt is where you use uh, electric current to make hyperchlorous acid um and that's in substitute instead of chlorine but I think the main problem is going to be the salinity, isn't it? Because it's going to be brackish water coming back. Although it's fresh water, as it meets the, the sea, it's going to be brackish. And I, I'm not sure many off-the-shelf solutions are going to do that readily. Yeah, that could be the case. I think, I think a lot of the water coming from the dam is going to be uh, kind of fresh water. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I, I would assume it was fresh water. Um, even though it's by the estuary, I don't think... Uh, Water's coming back in from the sea. I could, be, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I was going to say the system I'm look, uh, I, I looked at uh, did not create hydrochloric acid. It created actual chlorine or a chlorate. Uh, so it, was, um, it wasn't it was hydrochloric acid. And the product that came out of it was slightly saline, but you use so damn little of it relative to the amount of water that you produce. So it would produce a fairly concentrated stream of perchlorate. I think it was like sodium perchlorate or something like that, that you then added into um, like, you know, a thousand liters or 5,000 liters of water and you could, you purify it. Now I'll be the first one to say this stuff isn't going to be the quality of water that people were used to in a modern major city, but it's going to be safe and it's going to be a lot of it and it's going to be point source. So if you can get uh, solar panels, you can get a bag of salt, you can get water pre-filtered that isn't necessarily super clean, just not, um, you know, like the five micron would be fine. It would be perfect. That would be adequate. You get a big tank of that um, pumped into it. You add the chlorine. You let it sit for 20 minutes. You've got 10,000 gallons of potable water, uh, you know, and or 5,000 gallons or something like that, or 1,000 gallons, maybe 5,000 liters. But you get considerable amounts. And the reason they developed that product was because they realized exactly the situation that Ryan was talking about, um, that you can't get water to places in emergencies because you can't, you don't even have the access. In Puerto Rico, the roads weren't in, in any kind of shape. They were completely demolished by the hurricane. It took them weeks, sometimes months. But you could backpack some of this other stuff up into these remote villages and they could get at least potable water. They could get fans running. In some cases, they could get the refrigerators back running. Some lights, you know, air conditioners, forget it. Big, power-hungry uh, uh, appliances, no chance. But the basic stuff they could get going, and they could get it going fairly quickly. Um, I will, uh, Ryan, I will send you the link to the MSR uh, website, uh, and you guys can disseminate it however you want. But there's others similar to that if you do a Google search. Hey, I'd like to make two points. I think one is there's a crisis right now, um, but 
as this, um, you know, we don't know how the war is going to go the next six months. But if it, uh, if you look south, uh, obviously you know that the Crimean water supply has been dramatically affected by the dam blowing, and in general, you're starting to enter into a freshwater desert. Um, and so let's say you take this scenario where there's a lot of fighting down in that area, villages are being um, liberated, uh, water is going to be an increasing, increasing problem. So I, I think you guys are focusing, you might even want to have a whole second session on it. And, and then I want to just comment about Puerto Rico. We did a lot of work after, especially after the earthquake in Puerto Rico and the most recent Fiona hurricane. Um, one of the things that's important, I think, is is uh, community resilience. So, it, you know, there has to be in advance uh, the mentality of having uh, a, a system where communities understand how to take care of themselves. And one of the things we did is we actually had our system. There's an NGO called Footprint Project that specializes in clean energy for disaster relief. And we build a lot of stuff for them, obviously. But what they were doing is they had the volunteer infrastructure that when the power got back to let's say this part of the mountain then they took it and they moved stuff to other parts where it was still needed so the one thing that's cool about you know having portability that we work with is that you're able uh if you have these assets under control you can um redeploy them uh, consistently um and then i also would touch on this aspect of you know community resilience i mean ukrainians have bounded together in many ways and their informal infrastructures you know have been great but they have lacked a lot of assets you know they set up these points of invincibility and i remember watching uh this uh, on YouTube, I was watching a report from The Guardian where the guy shows up at the point of invincibility and the lady says, well, do you want some tea? Because she had a little propane stove and she goes, well, do you have electricity? She goes, oh, yeah, they gave me a generator, but I don't have any money for that generator. Um, you know, so they have it's like they have the infrastructure for community res or they have the efforts and community resilience. But. You know what? One of the things we're trying to change with NGOs and others or governments who are donating is, hey, start thinking about new technology because guess what? The old one is not so great in in many operating environments. It's like say you're in Puerto Rico and you're you're running that thing off a gas generator, and well, how are you going to pass it around? Does the next guy have fuel and everything? coolest thing about solar generators is well you don't have to worry about that point because you have a method of generation and one of the things i do want to comment on is because there was a quick comment earlier well what do you do when the sun's not strong or not there um you know we one of the things about gas generators is you have to have fuel it's only one choice uh, with ours yes sun is one method of charging um, but the other of course is you find uh, where the grid is nearest you quickly recharge it we do make sure they're quick recharge and that's the one thing about lithium by the way versus your lead acid batteries is lithium charges uh, up to five times faster uh, in some cases. And then, um, of course, even, you know, one of the things is we say don't get rid of your portable gas generators. There are great, you know, last means. So you can fire up that gas generator, charge the unit in two hours, and then turn your gas generator off. You know, one of the things we, we responded really quickly to in, during the refugee crisis. So can you imagine you arrived at the Moldovan border and you're in this refugee camp and all you could hear is the din of generators? And it adds to your PTSD and everything. 
Um, so we actually had a couple of larger solar trailers that we managed to get into Moldova uh, deployed and everything. So um, anyway, I just wanted to give some other anecdotal stories around the subject. Yeah, um, but thanks, this is, thanks, uh, thanks uh, having having a having a backup for your backup for your backup is uh, really important. One thing I know about the uh, Ukrainians are they are very resilient. Um, if we can get if we can get the right tools uh, into their hands, they'll find the right people and the right teams to. To, to do uh, to to do the best with that with that stuff. Uh, I just... do I I do want to comment though. Sometimes they're too innovative. There were a lot of cases like working with car batteries and inverters, and everybody's clever. Everybody's got an engineering degree in Ukraine, you know. And uh, but sometimes they set up these homemade systems. We had a family member that blew up one of his rooms um, with the lead acid car batteries he was using. So that's one of the reasons why we set out to do what we did a couple of years back is we'll be, we build in the breakers and the safety and the right gauge wires, you know, and everything. And that's really important for donors to know that the equipment they're providing is safe. Yeah. Always read the instruction manual. Uh, the angry. Over to you. Yeah, so I'm just going to um, digress to uh, to what dry fly was there. Uh, Paul, you got a hot mic there, but um, <clears throat> you know he's mentioning sodium perchlorate, and uh, which is uh, basically pool cleaner. And when I was on the dart team, uh, that's one of the first places we'd stop if we went to a place where we know it wasn't potable water. Uh, you know the there if it's if it's salinated there there's very little you can do there's there's only like three methods you can you can use to desalinate uh, water it's uh, and no other way but we'd stop at the pool store you know the pool supply uh, depots and uh, grab as many uh, uh, excuse me chlorine tabs as as we can and we'd uh, hump that into into country like hundreds and Oh, excuse me, uh, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of these uh, of these pool tabs. And uh, they, they go a long way. Like you can you can give a couple pool tabs to a house and hey, all you need to settle out the water, uh, scrape a little bit of this uh, of this chlorine powder into it and, and let it sit for a couple hours and, and you're gold. It, it probably won't taste well, but it, it won't kill you. Yeah, that's the important thing, not being killed by the water you're drinking. So there's probably different types of uh, waters. There's a potable water you need to obviously drink. And then there's other type of water, which is not drinkable, but still uh, useful for washing and, and things like that, because you need to keep yourself clean, obviously, uh, but you don't need to drink it. But um, yeah, hopefully no beasties in that. It can maybe have a bit of silt in. Um, but um, yeah, no, no beasties, no bacteria. Uh, and type of thing. Un unless, unless you're uh, ex-infantry, and then you can drink anything. <laughs> no, I, I, I've literally watched little in my canteen, like little micro whores swimming around. And it, this came out of the water bowser. And I'm going like, uh, is this water treated? And they're just drink your water. I think I saw a photo of you the other day or a video. I thought it was a Russian soldier drinking directly from some river, but it might have been you. I don't know. I might be getting confused. <laughs> just joking, angry. Um, yeah. Um, you know, water. It's 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 one of the we're used to in the West just switching on the tap. But when you haven't got it, um, you, you can last without food for a long time. But without water, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna last very long. Um, so that's one of the most important things. Um, Ryan, oh sorry, Paul, uh, do you, you speak of things on? So do you want to say something? Oh, sorry, I'm muted. Ah, 
Okay, I, I can I can see a little blue blue thing going. So I wasn't sure if you knew from. Maybe I've got maybe I've got Twitter pox again, again. So so yeah. So if anybody wants to um, try and help uh, the people uh, being affected by this damn explosion by this Russian aggression, um, please make a donation to Maria Report, and then we'll just dis- we'll disperse the funds. Um, our board uh, makes decisions on where the funds are dispersed. So if you make a, a donation to MariaReport.org. Um, those funds are going to go um, to very worthy causes. Um, yeah, that's my little advert. I'm not very good at these adverts. Um, I need to get um, someone like uh, Savida to do these adverts. It's brilliant, Harry. So, uh, Leda, 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 your hand is up. Hello, thank you. Slava Ukraini. Um, I wanted to just. Yes, thank you. Hey, I just have to say is that Lida's the one that made Lida's the one that made all this happen with Helena and everything today. So we have to thank her. Thanks, Paul. Yes, and and the the evil that we are seeing from them ongoing today. Uh, maybe you've seen some of the tweets out there that the chief rabbi of Ukraine was in Kherson and fell under bombardment. He's okay. Other volunteers are being hit. And I just wanted to bring out a point about Kherson and, <clears throat> excuse me, that kind of ongoing, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, evil danger from this insane enemy that they are doing this double tap and uh, some call it and, and attacking volunteers. So therefore, um, even before this flood, Helena had told us that, uh, you know, it's dangerous for her city teams to even run around the city with fuel to resupply any generators that may be out there from before. So it's just, you know, we have to minimize uh, risk on her team as well. And as they run around and not have burden them additionally with, with bringing fuel from one place to another. Now that's doubly difficult with having to use boats. So it's pretty obvious. And then obviously when you have water on the ground, you can't put a fuel-based generator on that ground. So there we have this compounded situation. Thank you. Lita, Thank you. Check, your, check your DMs. Um, I also have uh, your phone number now, so I will reach out to you on Signal to coordinate further. Super. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say anybody who wants to reach out, please you know, DM me. I know my last name is really hard to spell. Um, that's what makes me very Ukrainian. And um, but uh, I, I very I really appreciate everybody's suggestions on pairings with other technologies. Happy to take all suggestions. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, Uh Paul, your um, DMs are closed, from what I can tell. Um, I just tried to send you a link for the MSR device. Um, if you uh, follow me, I can probably DM you directly, but you may want to open your DMs at least for a while. And I'll just... well, yeah, I didn't do that purposely. Maybe that was Musk because I'm very rabid pro-Ukrainian. So who knows? Uh, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll double check it right now. Not intentional. What's going on with follow... Paul? <laughs> Excuse me, DriveFly. We follow each other, so you can always send that to me and my DMs. Thank you. Yeah, and Lead is in touch with Hilana as well. So um, feel free to reach out to her or Paul. Yeah, if yeah, you can I... check, if you, Ryan, you can check it again. Or I think I just switched it to all notifications. I'm sorry to yep, burden Yep, I can everybody. see you now. I can DM you. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I had, um, for some reason, that Elon Musk decided to um, 
uh, have me unfollow Maria Report today, which I found out when I when I came up to speak, and it said, do you want to follow the host? So I have no idea what he's thinking. He's completely bonkers. Um, terrible, terrible. Yeah, one thing I'm, I'm reading about is uh, over on the, uh, what side would that be? The left hand, the left bank, the, Russian, the currently Russian-occupied side. Over the previous two weeks, they've been taking boats away from, uh, from the residents there. So they knew what they were doing. Uh, they knew that this, 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 this uh, blowing up of the dam was banned. Um, they, they took the boats away uh, uh, over the last few weeks so that people couldn't escape uh, from the rising floodwaters. So when I read that, that just made my blood boil. Um, all these things uh, attacking the rescuers, uh, attacking the civilians which are waiting to be rescued. It's just it's just it's a sign of a, a barbaric culture, uh, a very barbaric, barbaric people. Um, it's just... It's just wrong on so many, so many different levels. Um, I, I do see that uh, the Ukrainian artillery was able to return some uh, some relief efforts of their own and uh, caught some of the Russian artillery with their pants down today. Yeah, I've been hoping of uh, what do you call it, counter battery fire, as it were. So when they fire um, at, 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 the, at the rescuers and everybody, I really hope the uh, the, the the Ukrainian military. Um, spot them and, and hit them however i'm kind of i am aware that they're they're sniping and all that kind of stuff from within civilian areas so it's really difficult to return fire very 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 accurately in a civilian area um if you've got soldiers in there so it's a really catch-22 in a, in a terrible situation and just a reflection of how unprofessional um uh the, the russian military is uh, it's just doing these things against the laws of war against all ethics um just bonkers um and we've got to help ukraine get through it um so we're going to do all we can um especially especially every day there's, there's, i don't think there's any special day it's it's every day basically we just gotta keep on doing it um events like this focus our minds a little bit more um focus other people's minds who may, who may grow a little bit weary as well i wish these things didn't happen um to focus the need to focus people's minds but um those of us that are here those of us that are listening those of us that volunteer um we've been here for a long time and many of us i, I would I, I would i would hope all of us are going to stay here until ukraine is liberated uh until the russians are forced to leave um either in a black bag or they can walk their way out preferably for them if they walk their way out um so that's all we've got to do we've just got to help um, I'm going to find the the most efficient way to help. Uh, that's one of the secrets of trying to help is trying to be efficient in 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 what we do. So, yeah, everyone that's spoken over the last little while now um, from from your various different companies with your various different uh, levels of experience. If you can contact each other uh, in the back channels by DM or or Signal or whatever it is uh, to help coordinate um, and help coordinate relief efforts. Um, for those people affected by, uh, one, this, uh, this, this, this dam being uh, demolished by the Russians, and two, the wider, the wider war efforts um, on the wider effort to, to remove You know, I, I, just, I just need to emphasize, uh, uh, you know, I'm not here, um, you know, selling our stuff. I'm actually trying to explain the new technology, but I want to emphasize to anybody is that we are always looking for recipients 
Um, I've got a big network of NGOs that I try to tap into, uh, and I'm always looking for recipients to help. Um, so I sometimes very often I've raised over several million dollars for various things. Um, not always mine, um, but I, I like to help in any any way. So I look forward to widening my network uh, from this experience with Maria Report because you said it takes everybody, you know, banding together. And it's like we got to band together on one initiative, back off, band together on another. Um, I think that's one of the amazing things that I've observed over the last year is that, you know, Ukrainians, if you ask them, they're like, don't rely on Red Cross or any of these other big relief agencies. We rely on smaller NGOs. Um, I had a very unpleasant experience at the beginning of this when I got on a call with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I'm a member of one of their committees and I have it was all about Ukraine and they get on saying only donate to trusted sources and they basically dissed every small NGO out there and what they were doing of course is just racketing to raise money for these big themselves so they could then send a bunch of equipment to a warehouse in Lviv and sit in the bar you know and some of the groups did great work but I have witnessed small groups new groups Groups, new NGOs do some, you know, amazing work. So if anybody out there is looking for where we could help with our equipment and you don't have the funds, I mean, let's, I can't guarantee it, but I can maybe connect with under NGOs and then make stuff happen. Yeah, no, great. I mean, well, yeah, when you're explaining your, uh, your product from your company, it can, it can, when anybody does a sound sales personally, but it's actually just putting information out there. Um, so other people might, it might twig a light bulb moment in, in somebody else and they go, Oh, Oh yeah. And, and then they get in contact with you. And as you say, um, yeah, everyone's in a team. There's no I in team. It's everyone working together. Um, as the cliche goes, uh, and it's how to do that the best as well. So no, really thank you for, 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 for explaining your products and, and explaining things more widely as well. Um, with, with your experience, uh, angry. Yeah, I, I just want to mention that uh, uh, part part of our job with uh, with Marie Report is uh, changing the paradigm, right? Uh, and there's there's decades of ingrained and like Paul was alluding there. Uh, uh, I work um, with a uh, in in Canada with a very large organization, and uh, I was actually planning to go over with Ryan at one point. And uh, it, it fell through. Uh, but uh, when my when I was discussing it with my employer, uh, there's oh that's great uh, you're 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 going over there that's that's wonderful who are you going with and I mentioned the NGO and it's a smaller smaller NGO, and they're going you know you should really think about going with the with with the uh, with the Red Cross, you know because they they're they're big and they, they, and at the same time like Ryan is is texting me on on the back channels going oh there they are they're 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 in another hotel they move. Red Cross has moved from this hotel over to this hotel. And, you know, so it's uh, I, I would happily take my chances with a smaller NGO than be affiliated with uh, any of those knuckleheads. And uh, you, we, we got we got to kind of push. Uh, we got to push uh, in, in our communities back here in North America and Europe uh, that a OK, Australia, too. That you know, people like Renegade Relief Runners—they're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're spot on. You know, they're—they're doing—they're doing God's work there. Uh, the the smaller NGOs, and uh, they're the ones doing the work on the ground. And I hope 
when this is all said and done, they get the recognition they deserve because uh, it, it's damn heroic. And I will go to war with any of you any day. Yeah, agreed, angry. I, I definitely prefer the the, the smaller uh, relief helpers um, like Renegade, like Maria Report, um, and, and even even some single individuals. I mean, there's, there's United Twenty Four, which uh, I do I do have a monthly subscription to because it's got Zelensky's name on it. Um, but that's really the only big one that I uh, I subscribe to. Everyone else that I give money to is is, is, is a small is is a small team uh, doing doing things. There's, I just feel feel safer doing that. I feel as though it's it's more personal as well. There's there's me, there's them, and then there's the people they're helping. There's no administrators um, taking their little cut. I, I really annoys me. A professional professional charity worker. I, I don't get it. It sounds oxymoronic to me. Somebody who's an administrator. Okay, you do need administrators in these things, um, but you don't need tens of administrators for for every every person on the ground. Uh, that's just ridiculous. It's, it's just a way of Seems to me a way of making money. So yeah, I agree. The smaller ones um, do the most for the smaller people. That's, that's the way. Hey, I, I, I'll give a shout out though to one big one called Direct Relief out of Santa Barbara, California. I think they're the fifth largest now in the U.S. But these guys focus on medicine, medicine only, and uh, they're like really fast up and coming. They uh, they've been incredible in Ukraine. They've done. Uh, mobile field hospital. I mean, they've literally put over 200 something million to work. And I know they don't have a big, in fact, it's been frustrating because we did some programs with them where they bought some of our stuff. We put it into hospitals. If anything, they didn't have enough people. Um, so if you guys though come across direct relief, they're, they're amazing. I think I've vaguely heard of them. Yeah. And I have heard they have done good work. So that, that's really good. Yeah. Not all the big ones are, are bad. It's just, uh, just some of them. When I see the when I see a Red Cross now, it reminds me of Switzerland, and I stick them both in the same boat, basically, uh, same flag, uh, both useless. Uh, you, you know what the other litmus test is? Do they hire locals? Like Direct Relief didn't send anybody into Ukraine from Western staff. They immediately hired locals everywhere, and they provide jobs in that process. I think you guys probably all know that, but uh, I would just say those guys were interesting in that regard. Didn't deal with a single Westerner inside Ukraine. Yeah, that's one of the important things as well to help help keep the uh, Ukrainian economy going as well is, is to hire locals. It, it's it's good having expertise coming in, but if you've got the expertise already there, then it's a it's a whole lot of money saved, a whole lot of logistics saved as well by 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 employing the locals. We've got the one local knowledge and expertise as well. Can I I actually make a comment on that? It's a pet peeve of mine is procurement processes by NGOs as well, like those serving Ukraine. Um, To me, I've seen some large ones, um, and I'll call out publicly, for example, Razum for Ukraine, where I've pointed out um, competitors of mine who are expanding in Russia in in late last year and this year, and they're expanding their footprint, a company called EcoFlow, which some of you guys might have heard. Um, They're also entirely pretty much owned by Chinese venture capital, um, which hasn't been always the most endearing for Ukraine, you know, and it's like, so when you're going to buy, are you going to put the right, like, are you going to buy from the right providers? Um, you know, and, and there needs to be a checklist and a lot of NGOs don't have this in their procurement, but like, if you're doing business and you're procuring in Ukraine, you know, first Ukrainians prefer you buy from companies that aren't doing business in Russia, for example, that should be like a first. And, and I'll tell you, honestly, our U.S. Embassy is guilty of this, too. They don't always procure along all these lines. 
um, looking at, at that. But for, for us, we know that's a big issue. I've been tracking all these foreign corporations that haven't left Ukraine. You guys, I'm sure, have had lots of discussions on Maria about it. But, you know, maybe, Maria, you guys could look into procurement requirements and maybe have a little checklist. Who's your preferred, you know, even if it costs a little bit more, but there's, uh, you know, the vendor checks all the right, bo- like, uh, and I would add to that, hires Ukrainian staff. So we, for example, have started farming out corporate work. So we deliberately went out with our marketing uh, graphic design work, which we were using guys here in the U.S., and we've now farmed all of that out to Ukraine. So we have two people that we're um, basically now hiring, you know, uh, 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 for corporate global work stuff for the U.S. and English, and we're hiring them in Ukraine. You know, we should be getting a plus when it comes to tenders or or, or vendor requirements for that way. So, you know, I don't know if you ever want to have a whole session about this, but I would be happy to contribute some ideas all the ways that you know because there's a lot of money going into ukraine and there's going to be a lot of you know one of the things when it comes to rebuilding and reconstruction you know all the lawyers and consultants are out there now with their conferences and everything you know there there could be a checked box were you there during the war did you do the hard work then or are you a carpetbagger i mean there's lots of these kind of things that i think should go into this whole purchasing uh cycle uh requirements and and selection I've got a background in procurement, and I do not disagree with you on any of that. But um, just as a small caveat to that, a big organization like Razom, who is trying to fill a need, might just be looking at a simple supply and demand issue. Um, If the capacity is there and they can get them and deliver them within a couple of days, they might go with a Buletti or uh, whoever the other brand name is that you just mentioned. Um, No. No, I, I agree. I, I empathize with you 100%. There are certain types of bottled water that I will not buy at gas stations in Ukraine because they indirectly benefit Russia. And depending on which gas station you're in and which gas station attendant you set that bottle of water in front of, they might even give you a funny look if you pick the Russian supporting water. And then they'll kindly motion over towards the Wog water or the Oko water. But I I agree with you, people who are supporting Ukraine and hiring Ukrainians and have been there the whole time versus some Chinese venture capital company, I'm probably going to pick the Ukrainian supporting company every time. But when it's a situation like drones, like everybody here knows the DJI doesn't care who they sell their drones to. They're just a Chinese for-profit company, and there are equal numbers of DJI drones on both sides of the front line. And I think... Damn near everybody in Ukraine would buy something different if the capacity was there. But when you're in a tight spot and you just need a drone to keep guys alive or make sure that they come home from their scouting mission and all that you can find is a DJI, you're going to go ahead and take the DJI because it's what's available. And same thing goes with power banks. Yeah, I don't fully agree on the power bank side because when you give people ample time, I have no problem providing the same amount as others. But, you know, I would just say I put this information in front of board members and just get no response. So it's uh, it's the responsiveness, like you're not even going, I'll look into it or anything like that. So um, everybody has the same capacity levels and the like. But um, in any case, uh, I understand about the drone situation for sure. That's a, that's a supply chain issue. So I'm not saying don't buy stuff that's made in China. I'm just saying there are a lot of variety and choice. 
And I think there can be purchasing criteria uh, over time set out. Uh, we've been at this for over a year now. So the first panic phase is over. Everything else now, we're kind of out of the panic phases. Yeah, agreed. My motto is if you don't have to buy in China, don't buy in China. But sometimes some of the things made in China that just happen to be at the price point where it makes no sense to buy something five times the price somewhere else. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, buy from buy from buy from friends um, is probably how I put it. Uh, buy from friendly friendly companies, friendly people, uh, friendly countries uh, first. Um, it's your hard-earned money. Um, and somebody needs it on the other end uh, and try and get the best value and the best best ethical value as well for the dollar or the pound or the euro. Uh, that's the most important. That's one of the important things, I think. So, yeah, uh, Paul, i got a question, a little question. I think you mentioned it before, but I, I want to just crash this now. And before, um, I had a little bit of an audio issue about probably about half an hour ago. So on your, on your uh, solar power generation um, uh, uh, gadgets, I'm going to say, what is what's the surge capacity on them? Was it five thousand? Five thousand. It depends. It de- it's usually two x of what the inverter is, and so like uh, uh, one unit that's we make in, in a Pelican case that's used by a lot of Ukrainian military. Uh, not a lot, but some elite units. Uh, it's got a two kilowatt inverter, so it'll surge to four. Um, the systems, for example, we put into points of invincibility. They're five kilowatts, so it'll surge to ten. Uh, but that's a general rule. It'll do a 2x surge. And for, but for a couple of, you know, for a very short period of time. And there's a guy, the longer time you're surging, it goes down. It goes like you can do a very quick, I don't know the millisecond, I'm not an engineer, but uh, you do a quick uh, uh, surge to 2x. And then if you're going longer, then you surge, uh, you know, half, uh, probably usually 1.5 times the, the value of the inverter. And usually you can't sustain it. Although, you know, we had a, a hilarious, our CFO was using one of our units at his cabin um, uh, just this last week. He goes, oh, I, I had no problem. I plugged in an 1800 watt device. And we said, what, what are you doing? It's a 1200 watt inverter. And he goes, oh, no, it ran no problem for about four minutes. You know, <laughs> so, um, so you never, you know, it, it, it's power electronics. It might, it, sometimes it disappoints you. Sometimes it exceeds its expectations. But the general rule is 2x for short periods. And then the longer you're doing it, it goes down. Yeah, my um, I I I, I kind of missized my uh my inverter in my in my shed, so I only bought a thousand watt inverter, and um, what a load of rubbish that is. Basically, I can't even plug a Hoover into it because my Hoover is is thirteen hundred watts, so uh, I don't dare plug my Hoover in it. Not that I'm going to keep it for my garden or anything like that, but um, yeah, it's just just the principle. I should have bought myself a overkill on the inverter. I needed a four thousand watt inverter, so I've got to go and source that somewhere. Well, um, I'll point out one general rule is, you know, we, we generally 95% of what we sell is two kilowatts and above. And the reason is we used to do 1500 watt and other. And the reason is exactly what you said. It's basic usage. Um, we've covered like 90% of basic usage up to, uh, it'll be below two kilowatts. Um, so if you want a big circular saw, huge thing, okay, that'll be too big. But if you're running a power saw, no problem. Um, so two kilowatts is a great place to cover a lot of the needs, you know, and you got to look at a tea kettle, you know, know, people want to run an electric tea kettle. Yeah. It uses a ton of energy. So, but you got to be able to cover that and that's going to be over your thousand Watts, of course. 
Yeah, I definitely, I definitely started looking at the back of all my electronic gadgets just to see how many watts they started pulling. And um, yeah, kettles were really surprising. Uh, so was so was Hoover. My Hoover was really surprising. Uh, freezer not so bad. Once it gets going, once it once it gets cool, it just trickles along. Um, so that's what I do in the summer. I, I run cables out of my shed and then run things in the house um, off that off, off off that free energy. So. Yeah, solar panels, solar power. Well, I'll, I'll offer another piece of technical advice. Um, you know, we urge everybody, you know, you got you, you talked about understanding your loads. Well, that's one of them. Now, we provide counters and everything. You can see how the load goes up and down. We, we have Bluetooth and apps on the phone. It tells you how much runtime you have left based on the current load and everything. Um, you know, but a lot of, you know, you want to have um, the most efficient equipment hooked into it. We were doing a large barbecue competition um, last September, and we big solar trailer out there and everything and they died at like two in the morning and we found we found out why extra people hooked in and they were running incandescent light bulbs so all of a sudden there we counted 15 or 1500 watts of extra power for only 15 light bulbs if they did the equivalent in led that would have been 90 watts and the thing would have run all night as we planned so you know energy efficiency um you know, it is a big deal. We're, we're actually expanding in the film and TV area only because they finally have started to adopt LED lighting. These guys used to use five and 10 kilowatt tungsten light bulbs. Okay. There's just, you got to run a generator for that. Now that they go into LED, uh, wear and play, they can have quiet. They don't need fumes. They don't need cabling everywhere. So there's like these transformational moments that happen when the actual, power load you know goes down like like don't run an old fridge off solar you you gotta get a newer fridge and freezer and you can run the some of the biggest ones no problem uh, you know off a off a power bank no i totally agree with you the led lots of people don't understand the power efficiency and the consumption um being aware of how much load you're drawing off of your power bank or your inverter or the regular line from the system is a very important factor in rationing your power. And by God, if somebody tries to hook an incandescent light to your power bank, kick them in the junk and send them on their way. You know, and, and one of the things is what's the coolest thing about this revolution is that in, it's independent. Two things are happening. One, you we work with a lot of people who go yeah. independent power. And that feeling of independence is is achieved when you can keep your loads uh, rational or lower and, and, and you keep them within reason. I mean, and, and not wasting uh, is one. And then, of course, you know, in an emergency situation, the whole issue is doubled because everybody wants to get a piece of it. We had one of our units, Helena, was sharing amongst 26 families. OK, we just didn't have enough donors and we got her one and she put it out into one of those districts with no power. And she she basically said limited everybody to computers and uh, laptops, meaning and, and phone devices and tablets. And she's that was it. You couldn't run anything else off it. And so those you can recharge those, your batteries. You can't run a blender or cook dinner on the power bank. That's fair. Well, our larger stuff you can, but you know, still I'm, induction I'm cooking. You, induction, you can, cooking. but you shouldn't because you will. No, you shouldn't. You'll drain the battery, and then nobody else can cook their dinner. No, but you know, in, in we deal with a lot like Cajun Kitchen and other 
uh, or there's a couple of groups in Louisiana we were dealing with. And hey, run your propane. When you do emergency situations, do your cooking off propane. You know, it makes the most sense. And then keep the lights on and fans and everything else. You know, uh, there's induction cooking, but you're right. It, it does use a lot of power still. I've I've got a home-built battery bank that runs off of four or five car batteries that's installed in a, a tool truck. And it has a power inverter, and we use it as an RV. And we can't run the microwave or the hot plate unless the engine is running and charging the batteries because even five car batteries will not run a microwave or a hot plate for very long but you can leave the refrigerator running on those batteries without generator or without alternator power supply for almost an endless amount of time because a refrigerator compressor draws very little power except when it immediately starts up the compressor you mean you're not cooking off the engine block like everybody else I mean, technically we could, but the engine block, I think, sits about five foot high, and I'm not going to cook on a step stool in front of a tool truck. I already look trashy enough driving around a tool truck as an RV. I'm sure if there's a way you can make it look cool. If I could get that snap-on truck to Ukraine, I would be there right now delivering stuff in it to Harrison as rapidly as I could. It's a perfect tool for what's needed there. I just don't know how to get a truck that big to Europe. And it would eat me alive on the diesel cost. Chris, go ahead. Oh, thanks, folks. Um, I just wanted to do um, just mention, you know, as you guys know, we had you um, control um, on yesterday. And I was just hearing Paul talking about checking out uh, companies um, and their connections with Russians, Chinese, etc. So I just wanted to make him aware of um you control. So I just I said to the DM quickly, Paul, if you could just respond, uh, that might be of interest to you. Roger that. Take a look at it. I'm trying to manage everything on my phone here, so I'll get to it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> 